Welcome to the Footprint Plus 2023 podcast series. Carbon Optioneering at the Pre-Application Stage, brought to you in association with PRP Architects. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this session. I must say what a great way to kickstart today's event by, by introducing and having an open discussion on the recently adopted Carbon Optioneering Guidance by the City of London Corporation. Some of you might already be aware that the City of London published the groundbreaking draft planning advisory note last year in its commitment towards net zero and the wider climate action strategy. Since then, following a vibrant and involved consultation process, the plan has been adopted a month ago in April, so very recent, and the guidance note and the, and the document guideline opens up the discussion around the emphasis of uh, carbon optioneering at the pre-planning stages. And it leaves the questions in all our mind, is it the change that we need? To answer this question, we have got a fantastic panel here. We have got Andrew Murray, who is the Associate Director at uh, Hilson Moran, also the author of the PAN. He has been involved in developing this uh, guidance uh, for almost 18 months now, Andrew. And, has been, and he has also been advising the City of London Council uh, on whole life cycle carbon uh, guidance. We have Rob from City of London uh, Council. He is an assistant director and has been the force behind in getting this guidance out. He will talk to us about uh, the insights on the process and also the key policy development drivers. We have Alex from uh, Landsec. She is an experienced sustainability executive and Lansac also owns a lot of property in the city and they are one of the major stakeholders. So without taking any further time, uh, I'll, leave it, hand, I'll hand it over to the speakers to have a chat. But a quick reminder for all the audience that uh, please, please leave us some questions. With such an eminent panel, I, I can assure you there will be no question which will go unanswered. So, so do make use of Slido and the app to ask your questions. Uh, Rob, do you want to go? Thanks very much, and great to see you all here today. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'm just going to say a few words about why the City of London Corporation developed the Carbon Options Guidance. So we, like many local authorities up and down the country, are committed to doing our part to address uh, the challenges of climate change uh, and we adopted a climate action strategy back in 2021 that committed us to uh, making a, a net zero square mile by 2040. And we recognise that the planning system has an absolutely decisive role to play in achieving this. We're doing a review of our local plan at the moment, which is always a good time to consider what the, the best options are. And we're using that to support sustainable development. But a local plan takes time and whole life carbon has become an increasingly pr pressing political issue. Uh, we obviously are all aware of the, uh, the Marks and Spencers scheme. Fortunately, uh, colleagues in Westminster are having to deal with that one rather than us. But there are uh, similar issues on sites uh, throughout the City of London and that's been a rising and it, uh, that's been a matter of rising importance within the corporation. Our politicians wanted us to act and to act quickly. They wanted schemes to robustly consider alternatives to demolition where that was being proposed. 
And we were getting inconsistent and biased narratives uh, from various different sources, uh, giving us different carbon figures, giving us different approaches to retention, and giving us a lack of technical know-how. The planning system is incredibly complex. There's this great big jigsaw of different issues that we have to consider. We have hundreds of pages of planning reports on, on single schemes. But there's this missing piece of the jigsaw that was identified, this question of how can we require different options at an early stage when you simply don't have that information, don't have that detailed level of information uh, when you're considering applications at pre-application stage and through the planning system. So how can we have that conversation early enough to establish whether we're going to demolish or not, whether we're going to retrofit, and what the best, uh, best approach for any individual scheme is? Well, the first step that we decided to take was to call Andrew Moore at Hilson Moran because we needed an expert on our side. Uh, and I'm going to let Andrew tell you about the details of what we achieved with the whole life carbon planning advice note. Over to you, Andrew. Sure. Morning, everybody. Um, thank you all for, for coming. I um, hope everyone's well. Does everyone know, just it'd be good to get a quick show of hands, has everyone actually read the guidance in the audience? Okay, about a third. And people, people feeling good about it? What, what, what do sort of people want to know about it? Are you all kind of nervous? You know, who's nervous about it in terms of market, what it's going to mean for planning? No one's nervous. Wow, I'm really nervous. Job done. Um, so look, just a quick, really quick introduction. Whole life carbon assessment. Whole life carbon is basically everything that goes into a building and its operation. We have the upfront carbon, which is your product, your delivery, you're putting it together right. That's the thing a lot of people focus on, and that's great. There's also a big impact over life. And especially in commercial offices, um, we have a big issue around replacement and maintenance. We probably actually massively underestimate how often fit-outs happen. But whatever happens in this optioneering, so you get the basic principle, is that would flow through in a new build as well. It would flow through if you're retaining. It would flow through in any kind of market. We also have to look at, obviously, the embodied carbon, so the stuff that goes into the materials, the operational carbon, the energy that we use while we're in the buildings. You know, we use a lot of energy in these buildings. Yes, the grid's decarbonizing, but we need to do a lot of work um, around making us more efficient, especially in the energy price market at the moment, etc. Um, and then, obviously, we've got to look at the whole life cycle. Now, what this optioneering doesn't really factor in is Module D. So although we do look at circular economy in a certain way because we're trying to retain buildings and look at that approach, what we're not looking at is the benefit at the end. Because it becomes too complicated. You don't really know what's going to happen in the future. I can tell you what the recycling and industry market is going to look like in 60 years. And anyone who can is, you know, very good at visioning the future. So how did we get to this point? I was very lucky, actually, I have to say. I've got a good team of people that I work with at my company. I had a very good client on a big project in Holborn Viaduct. And uh, we got asked by the city to do some optioneering guidance. So we went, OK, we'll do that. And I gave them the answer, and the answer was the new build in carbon terms performed worse. City came back and went, what do you mean? We've got all these other projects that are saying it's the best option. And I thought, wow, that's quite interesting. If we're not retaining anything and they're not retaining anything, there might be a problem. And it doesn't mean that retrofit 
refurbishment is the only answer. There are complex design things you have to go through to do this. There was a chat yesterday about Upward Street. We went through some of the complexities of that. And I sort of opened a bit of a can of worms. I was very lucky that my client didn't say, I don't like that answer. I'm going to someone else who gives me a number I want. So I was very lucky. And it's important to remember that. Um, and then we had discussions with the city around this and said, actually, there's a lot of inconsistency. I looked at pretty much every planning application over six years. Um, from the city, so some had nothing to do with carbon probably six years ago, the last four years a few more were coming in and a few more options around that. We needed to get an understanding, we need to collaborate on the problem with the planners so be more transparent with them because if we're open with them we can have better solutions and make better decisions and then they can make better decisions and we all know where we stand. The thing is with carbon opportunities it becomes very chicken and egg. Anyone in this room who's worked in the world of carbon will know that at early design stage you don't have enough information to have any granularity or any detail, right? What we all then do is race to a target that's probably set far too low for, for the ability of the building that we're, we're building. And so what we need to do is actually take a step back from that and maybe start a little bit higher and work through the process and the design process like we would with everything else, space, structure. Everything else we refine as we go through the design process instead of racing to a sort of fictionalized number on a spreadsheet that won't actually save us any carbon in reality. So we have this little chicken and egg situation where we want to do better, and I think everyone in this room and in this building is probably going, we all want to do better. We know what the climate crisis is, and we've got to try and solve it. But we do have a few issues around what the best solution is. And unfortunately, there isn't this magic silver bullet that is called golden bullet that's going to help us. It's just good design and good teamwork and having a good brief from day one. The thing also with carbon, when you're doing a whole life carbon in terms of materials, is this classic sort of accuracy to ability to influence. The biggest decision we make is probably whether to retain the building structurally what we build it out of. Right? There are loads of other impacts, but that's the first thing you should look at. And obviously, as you get to sort of a later design stage, it's very hard to suddenly do a 180 and change that. One, you've probably already gone through the planning process, so you're restricted. And so you're, only, you're basically opening yourself up to just procurement risk, what you can buy in a different way. And there's lots of debate about globally what you can do, but at the moment, you just do the best you can for your project. Okay. But that, that is quite an important thing. But equally, from the knowledge we have now, and you know, compared to last year and every year, the industry's growing, yeah, you can feed back that information to make better decisions from day one. And that's quite important. Um, in terms of policy and tools, UK has no national legislation. There's things around Part Z and lots of very clever people working on that and trying to influence government. And I think that's important. I do think we need some sort of standard to go to. One, for consistency. It's difficult to do costs, all of that viability needs to be looked at, but I think it's something that will come in time. I can't see that not happening, but it's a question of when. Um, there are some sort of policies in cities, but they're pretty loose. Oh, preference to refurb, the, the National Planning Policy Framework has a thing about preference to refurb, but there's nothing around how you equate that. Is it possible? Well, anything's possible, but you've got to throw in viability, you've got to throw in the environmental aspects as well. I would say there's a bit of lack, a lack of knowledge, and sometimes that's like the lack of knowledge in the building you're working on, the design you've got, and how you improve it. Um, the outcomes aren't always comparable to benchmarks, because there isn't enough as-built data. And if you go through procurement on this, trying to get just detail that's accurate or reasonably accurate for your materials is an absolute minefield. We are getting better at it, and it is getting better, but we set a target too low. Um, You'll see a lot of things on your LinkedIn's and stuff about buildings, and they say we're hitting 560, we're hitting all these numbers, all of that, and it's great. It's really good to have the ambition, but then you don't actually know what's gone into that number. Thing is with carbon, the more things you analyze, the bigger your number gets. It's pretty logical, but it's true. Um, and then obviously there was no, there's no policy or mandate for carbon disclosure and construction. I think in, 
in Europe, they're sort of passing some draft legislation where concrete and steel, as a first port of call, will have to have mandated disclosure of the products that they produce. And that, that should hopefully come in in the next two or three years. Obviously, we're not in the EU, but maybe we should do something. Maybe we should look at leading the market. Um, so basically, are we doing enough? As I've said, it's a bit of a minefield. You've got BRIAM compliance that are different to everything else that everyone else is doing. Just because of legacy, when BRIAM started doing their thing way back in sort of 2016, consulting up the update, Embodied Carbon wasn't, it was thought about by a select bunch of people, but it wasn't really thought about in the mainstream. Since then, time's moved on. We're five years down the line and everything's surpassed <coughs> it. And it's important to understand the, the impact of carbon in terms of volumetrics. So there's some great people at Visualizing Carbon who've kind of shown just one day of carbon in, the, in, in New York visually sort of dwarfs the Empire State Building. It's a lot of carbon. There's a lot of carbon in the construction industry, and we've got to do something about it. So we've got to work out about how, in planning and in developing this policy, we could get consistency, use decent data, and actually try and come with a better outcome. Right? So balancing that viability to environmental side is really blooming difficult. Um, just to quickly highlight, and I know the screen's quite, sorry for the smallness, but yeah, when you look at these, and I could have had RICs, you can add all these things. When you look at all these different standards, they all look at different things slightly. But it's the same sort of pie, it's just sliced up differently, displayed differently. And we've actually got to get a bit con more consistent in that so we all know what we're talking about when we talk about it. And the scopes vary, and it's what you've looked at, what information you can have. How do you do FF&E for a building at stage two? It's really blooming difficult. Uh, the chairs, everything, yeah, mad, mad. Um, as well as in the scopes in terms of policy, there's no national regulation. Obviously, the GLA have sort of updated that, and I think actually they've done some really, really good work in trying to push that agenda, get some consistency in reporting. But it's just a numbers spreadsheet, really. Um, you know, backed up, verified everything else. And then the City of London are trying to grow from that. Now, we've worked quite closely with both the City and the GLA to try and make this process a step before you go into that detail. So this isn't something in conflict with it. It's a step before, yes, I've added another layer to the ladder. You can thank me later. Um, in terms of circularity, there is circularity built into the system in terms of the fact that if we do lean to reuse, Obviously, that's probably the most circular thing you can do. We're not crushing it, we're not, we're reusing it in situ, it's the best thing you can do. But that isn't always the best solution. Better understanding of waste and what we do with it, how we process it, is it more efficient on-site, off-site? Um, it's definitely more efficient off-site, but getting transparency. And then also in the GLA carbon, they have this little box, um, principle one around, well, have you confirmed you retain the building? But it's very subjective. There's no, there's no way of quantifying that, there's no real way of so you just say, well, we did it, but we wanted the new build because we wanted it anyway because it's just, it's just better. It's just better. So it, it, it's quite com complicated. And there's all of these statements you know, around what you do, and then you want to follow that. So then we've also got circular economy statements, which are sort of similar, but a bit, bit, bit disjointed from the carbon world. But again, there are links, because obviously if you're, not, if you're not demolishing and recycling and you're reusing, you're probably going to retain quite a lot of your, your carbon. I'm not a big fan of using the term term carbon saving because we're still emitting carbon. We're not saving carbon. On any construction building, we're not saving any carbon. We're still emitting. It's just we're emitting less. Um, so uh, I went down a rabbit hole um, into a rabbit warren. I think I've just about come out the other end. <laughs> we wanted to make it early stage. That does make life difficult because there are certain things you can do. So structural engineers in the room, you are so important in this part and understanding what solutions you can do. And that's based on company training, skill set, understanding, and probably trying to get better building data, which isn't easy, as we discussed yesterday, for those of you here. Using best assumptions. There are some assumptions you can flow through. So, you know, the fit-out materials, you could argue, the fit-out would be to a similar standard 
throughout, whether you're doing a refurb, whether you're doing a new build, you know, you could argue that those would stay the same for optioneering purposes. When you get into the detail, obviously, you look in the detail and you reduce your impacts that way. So we're trying to flow through to the GLA. But as, as, as Rob touched on, there are so many other considerations in planning. And as much as I'd love to stand here and say, don't knock anything down, don't do anything, the consequence of that for the industry and for everyone is incredibly bad. All your pensions are tied into buildings. So if the building industry stopped tomorrow and we didn't emit any more carbon, we would have problems. So we do still have to develop. We do still have to improve. We've got some really bad building stock in the UK. And so it's inherent that that happens, but it's about making better decisions. And you can see all of the sort of lists of things that are there and the things that need to be considered. And it's a lot. Um, as well as that, we've got to look at other things impacting of urban greening, roof space for plant. Roof space now in London especially and in other areas is becoming more important in terms of amenity, in terms of space for people to use and engage with. That puts pressure on MEP people in terms of how do you get, make your plant be low carbon, space, PV, renewables, all of those considerations come into it. It's really hard to be perfect. People always go for this perfect. The, the basic principle of sustainability is perfection is almost impossible to achieve because you've got to marry up all of these conflicting areas. And I think people are forgetting that a little bit. So we come up with some carbon options. We went through consultation. We had about four or five consultation meetings with the general public, which is really interesting. And it's good to see people engaging in the problem. Um, we, had, we had some expert ones, some ones with other boroughs, with the GLA. Lots of sessions, lots of really good feedback. And I actually think improved the document. I think we were here last year. And we mentioned we were doing this, and it, it got approved actually the morning of the first footprint to, to go forward to the next stage. And we went through the consultation process, and actually that was really helpful. So consultation is actually really important. I'd say it worked, had some really good suggestions, and we tried to apply some of those to the problems. But the big one is the third-party review got added, and I will, I will touch on that um, in a minute. So what is it? Right, so in term, as a methodology, it applies to all schemes pretty much in the city of London, right? But it's about engaging with your planners, the developers at pre-app stage, the, engaging with the planners to say, what actually are you looking for in this area? And what, what do we know? And how do we get to that point? We want them to be considered realistic and feasible. I worked on a project about six months ago where we came up, the design team came up with 14 options. That's insane. Don't do that. Completely crazy. Drill down to what's actually feasible within your budget, within your viability, and try and make it work, okay? We want light-for-light -light reporting. So we have a methodology. We produced a tool which, you know, okay, it's in Excel. It's not the best thing ever created, but it, we think it's pretty good. But equally, you can do your own way if you want to. But the reporting needs to be the same, the same numbers, the same metrics. But feel free to develop your own things if you want to. That's what design should be about. Um, if you come up with a better idea, come back to the city and we can improve it, you know, that's the point. We need the data and assumptions assumed. The classic one is ceiling height. Floor to ceiling height. I'll just pose a question to the audience. Maybe if we want to save carbon, we need to change our relationship with ceiling heights and viability in the market. Any agents in the room, you can come and crucify me later. But actually, to save the problem, you go, could we all just live in a slightly lower ceiling world and just accept it? I don't know. But I'd say that to a developer with a return on investment, and you're going to be in trouble, I think. Um, so it's a difficult one, that market first, going back to chicken and egg. Preferred justification, when you've chosen your option, and we're not saying you have to choose the lowest carbon option. I've had quite a few people contact me and say, do we have to do No, you don't, but it's about considered thought. Equally, I think we've had a few applications recently where people have said, well, we're not going to, but we're going to reuse more than we probably would have if we hadn't gone through the process, and that's good. That's good. There are probably some people who are going, I, I hate it, and I'll just say I'm building seven more basements to make the new build look better. But 
your choice. You'll probably get found out in a third-party review if you do that. Um, so we're looking for consistency. And then obviously, we've, we've referenced some benchmarks for GLA. So we've got another little flow-through chart going through optioneering, what to do. You can read it. It's all in the document. But it's pretty much all major applications, even non-major, though, if we're not reusing. But there aren't that many non-major applications in the city. So I think that's when you need to go and speak to the, the planning authority on when you come to that and just engage with them. I know they're also very busy, not trying to add work on their plate as well. But it's important to have that discussion and be open with them. Um, so in terms of process, you probably can't see it, but we need to undertake some scoping, report that in the pre-app meetings, so engage with the pre-app meetings. If you're doing third party, you might want the third party person to be there so you can understand what's going on around the context of the building, because it is important. You need to understand a lot to do whole life carbon. You need to understand procurement. You need to understand all these things. Some of these things won't have happened yet, but you need to understand it. You try and agree what you're, where you're going. The planners will say what they like, obviously, like they will on massing and everything else that they do, daylight and all of that. Um, third party review, just to check that there isn't anything silly in there. We had to bring that in. And being open and honest, there were a couple of, couple of incidences, I think, that would happen at committee that you can go and look on, on, on YouTube where some numbers suddenly changed. And, you know, not intentional. I think everyone's been learning through the process, but it happened. And then, obviously, nervousness creeps in to the planning authority because the members are going, hold on, they said this, and now it's changed. We made a decision there. So, unfortunately. I think, unfortunately, we had to bring that in. But hopefully, that will disappear as we all get more consistent in what we do. Um, yeah, and then obviously, for the application scheme, you'd still have that optioneering part. That would form part of the committee report that, that goes to members, and you can get on the planning portal. And then you'd obviously carry on with then doing your detailed GLA kind of style analysis. We'll call it GLA style analysis um, for that. So that's basically the process. Pretty simple. Here's the lovely dashboard with all the things we have to do. There's lots of stuff in there. I know it's difficult. Retaining by mass, we can just about work out. Facades to work out mass is really difficult, because you often don't know what's in the existing building. So we've done that by area, just, just to give a few metrics. And these will build on. These will hopefully improve over time. There are more. It's quite a long table. And I appreciate if you've had to fill it out. Um, it can take a little bit of time. Um, and then we have our outputs. Now, this is quite important. Um, we have. Obviously, this is just like a sort of theoretical exercise, right, in terms of what could be their operational energy. I mean, originally, when I looked at the planning ones, originally, the embodied carbon for new build would always be way worse. And I go, that's questionable. That's sort of been solved. And then people go, ah, oh, but our energy will be worse, even though we're recladding the building. You go, they're actually alarmingly similar in the commercial office. If you're recladding a building, repurposing it, you can get pretty efficient systems in there. You're talking like 5% variation, maybe, at best, on a, on a obviously, that's on a spreadsheet. So, you know, lots of people are saying, well, the operation would be way worse even though we're recladding. And you go, well, that's not quite right. If you weren't recladding, you've got an issue because of heat loss. The problem is you won't have a calculation at this point, but we have known knowns. We know what targets we want to improve. So you can just use that for this exercise. That, that may change, right? The numbers will change during the process. That's what design changes. These numbers will change along with design. That's pretty natural. Um, uh, and this is the controversial one that I just threw in. This, this graph, this graph, I'll be honest, it kind of annoys me. Um, and it was quite hard to set up because we have all of these lines, but it's, it's carbon per meter squared. And where does it cross over? We, we used the term that we shouldn't have used, really, when we put it payback. That was my fault, a mistake in the draft. So we removed that because it's not payback. It doesn't ever pay back your carbon, right? You're just emitting more or less, OK? But obviously, if you were to reuse things, but then you have all this sort of stage. Obviously, you have your upfront over here. So that might be where you're sort of sitting at for new build, whatever refurb um, numbers go up. That's all I can tell you from design. Numbers go up. Um, procurement risk, stuff like that. Um, 
I would say that obviously the in situ kind of one that's left here is a minor refurb. Probably with the legislation and the way that's going, people are going to do more upgrades. They need to do more upgrades. It's really difficult. The other thing here is it's not really about what happens. You can't really predict what's going to happen in a building in this phase. You can have a guess. It is a guess. Maybe operationally you can have a go. It's really point A to point, point Z, so that journey. I actually think, um, and it's one for the net zero people in the room, they may ask a question. The thing is with refurb in the commercial office world, um, <laughs> probably it's, it's a t aligned with lease, because most leases will have a thing in about return back to normal. If the lease is five years, and we're going, oh, we've only got four interventions on there. You go, well, if it's every five years, every six years, that actually mounts up really blooming quickly, especially with refrigerants and everything like that across your whole life. So it's quite important to think about that and what happens in the loss. Um, so we're hoping, and I know we've added another thing to do, um, but we're hoping it actually makes it a bit more holistic in the decision-making process. But as an industry, we have to be more open about our impact because then we can solve the problem. At the moment, I don't think we can solve the problem because we're not sure where we are still. And that's a big issue. That is a really big issue. So there's a, there's a thought for you to do. Um, we talked about this project yesterday, One Apple Street, in the city of London. So this is a slightly different approach, just to give you the other one's probably more of a new build kind of approach and looking at what you could do in a, a, a standard building. Sometimes when we already know the decision is to make a, a major refurb decision. Before this, we did on this project do some options looking at new builds. And um, Anthony at British Land spoke about this yesterday at length. Um, so I don't know if the slides will get circulated or whatever. But then we started within the optioneering, looking at what we could do within that refurb scope about numbers of floors, scoping, everything else. We actually ended up looking towards a major refurb with extension. And at the time, we were at 437, which is quite conservative um, for the, for the A, A1 to um, A5. And we've actually drilled that down. It's gone back down more to the other one now, just through some other design choices and some excellent work that AKT have done um, on the structure and optimization. And that, that will fluctuate again. And we're going through lots of procurement things. So there are ways as well within the refurbs. We're already deciding to refurb about deciding what you're going to do if you're extending floor plates, if you're making extensions, what you can do there. It's still important to look at it. Your primary impact will be lower, but you can still reduce the impact further. Um, over to um, AJ, who will give her opinion. Thank you. Hello, is that working? Can everyone hear? Yeah? Yeah, um, yeah. hello, I'm AJ, or also known as Alexandra, so I work for Landsec as a sustainable design executive. Um, so, as Andrew said, I'm just um, here to kind of give it, echo a little bit of what Andrew just said and then also give Landsec's perspective as a developer um, on the, the guidance. Um, so uh, Landsec's uh, sustainability strategy um, echo, echoes three pillars, build well, live well, act well. I'm not going to go through all of those today, but um, the point of showing this is just to, to show that um, our sustainability strategy whilst looking at um, reducing carbon emissions, also focuses on a wide aspect of sustainability. Um, and so um, when we're looking at um, reducing embodied carbon or developing, we need to, to look at um, a holistic approach to sustainability, whilst also delivering on our key target to reduce embodied carbon. Um, so whilst, so 
we know that to deliver on um, our target to reduce our embodied carbon by 50%, um, the key to that is asset retention. Um, and so retaining or refurbishing as much as, as possible and, and then look to smart design and low carbon options. Um, so where we can um, redevelop a, a building and retain it, um, we, that is absolutely first choice. Um, but as I said, we've got to, to take a holistic approach and look at all aspects of sustainability. Um, and that varies from, I'm sure Andrew said, that you know, looking at floor to ceiling heights, looking at the quality of the existing building, um, biodiversity, social value, all of those sorts of things. Um, and so um, we, we welcome the, the guidance and carbon option, optioneering at an early stage. Um, as it's something that Landsec do anyway at stage one or before, um, to, to look at all of these sustainability aspects, but also look at commercial viability. Um, and so this guidance forces other developers to also do the same, and for, it creates a framework for us all to, to work on, uh, to, to you know, do whole life carbon assessments to the same standard and the same parameters. Um, and as Andrew said, the guidance is very pragmatic in that it looks at the, the other things that we need to look at. So um, all of the considering fact, the factors that, that go into it. Um, and we found that um, where we have used the guidance, it's, it is a, a pragmatic approach and it looks at more than just re reducing body carbon and, um, and, and yeah. So, um, a few things to note where we have used the guidance is the third party review, the time, time scales. And so if you can look at carbon optioneering as early as possible and get, your, get the chosen option approved as soon as possible, then it avoids any program delays. Um, and um, yeah, I think that's key to be honest to, to, to looking at the different options and getting everybody on site. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think just to sum up, we support the, the guidance and we think it's really, really good to, to create a framework for everybody um, and hope that it leads to more refurbishment and more reuse in the city. Thank you. Thank you. Our mic's on. Can you hear me? Okay. So thank you for this uh, great presentation and introducing the guidance. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions coming in, but uh, maybe I can start, Rob, with you and ask, uh, you, you already know that there is a GLA guidance around whole life cycle assessment and circular economy. What made the city felt to have, a, uh, have this guidance in addition? Sorry, I couldn't quite hear that. Just say that again. Oh, we, all, we all know that there is a strong GLA uh, guidance around whole life cycle assessment and circular economy now. What, what made you feel that we need this guidance in addition? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said, there was, there was this really strong political push for us. I mean, the GLA, I actually used to work at the GLA, and the, the GLA's work on the whole life carbon circular economy statement guidance has been fantastic, groundbreaking, you know, really pushing at what, what could be achieved. But we had this real push to say, right, how can we square this circle of how do we decide whether or not we're going to demolish buildings? You know, that's something that <clears throat> you simply have to decide at 
an early stage because it informs every single aspect of the design of that site and that scheme. You can't have that decision made at the application stage. It has to be at the pre-application stage on those larger schemes. And our politicians were clear they needed us to do this. So we, we figured out a way, we commissioned Andrew and his team to figure out a way to help us uh, to make those, find out what those different options are and to inform that, uh, that carbon story. But it's, uh, I think as AJ has said, it's not just about the carbon. It's also about all these other planning matters, about these wider sustainability considerations. And this process allows us to consider all of those. Absolutely. Maybe this uh, a question for AJ. Like, uh, because the guidance focuses a lot on pre-planning process, uh, how does it, uh, how it has influenced your decision on uh, developing a site? Um, I think I heard that right. So oh. hard to hear when you're back here. Um, yeah, so it, it definitely helps um, in, in terms of um, justifying each option um, and, um, you know, given the, you know, the co in context of the climate crisis, um, demolition should be absolutely last resort. And so having gone through that process to look at all of the other options um, and then to, to look at low carbon options, I, I think that process definitely supports um, you know, supports that you've looked at everything, and then, as I said, also gets everybody on board. Um, I think that answered your question. Yes, you did. Really. Yeah. So we've got first question from from the audience. There's a, there's a mic as well going around, so people sit down. Oh, you, yes, please feel free to ask questions. Raise your hand, and we'll bring the mic to you to ask questions. Can. Hi there, uh, Mike Williams, Borough Happold. Um, you, you mentioned a lot of the cases are in favour of retention. Um, how is the data around MEP services and other, um, you know, other internal equipment, um, you know, that affects the overall uh, carbon calculation? If you know you're not knocking down and starting again. Sorry, I, I couldn't quite hear, but it was that about MEP. MEP systems rather than and, actual and structure. Yeah. Look, if you've got a new build, you're going to be putting a new, really clean MEP system and it'll probably be more efficient because you've got a lot more to work with. You might not be as constrained as you would be in certain areas of airflow, you know, but there are so many other solutions. So you've got to find, with a design team, the right solution for the right application in the buildings that you're working in. I think there is a bit of an issue around refrigerants. We're all decarbonizing, going off more electric. There are obviously loads of other macro issues around power. I think refrigerants is a big one. I think there are other things about refrigerants with PFAs and things like that, but maybe that's a slight compromise we have to, to take, but I appreciate it. It's harder in a refurb from an MEP point of view to get everything clean, get everything working, and then still get your sort of viable areas on the floor, especially if you're taking a building that was like a classic gas boiler with a cooling tower and you switch to an air source heat pump. You're going to need more space committed to, to, to working for the flow of heat, cooling, and air. And that does pose a problem. But then I do think with good design and with a good design team, you can work through that and try and facilitate change. In terms of numbers, the kit will be very similar, right? What happens is the, the amount of refrigerant. So your VRF may be a good solution in one application, but you're going to be using a lot more refrigerant. That does cause a problem whole life. But there has to be a decision made on that in transparency. I mean, MEP is underplayed in embodied carbon assessments. We know that. It's actually quite difficult to get the information. There's been some great work by um, Sibsi and uh, 
I was going to say Elementor, but I think they just changed their name. So apologies to the Elementor people. Um, and they've done some really good work guiding Sibzi TM65, but that's just a starting point. It's going to take time. It's kind of frustrating for me, right? I've worked in the industry for 15 years. I feel like we should have had these conversations 15 years ago, but we didn't. And so we are where we are. And we have to build on this knowledge. I think we have to work together a bit more because the data is hard to come by. And if you're using rubbish data, you're going to get rubbish information out. But the, but the services are underplayed massively, and we know that. And lots of people take the GLA um, figures, and they go, oh, it's 9.50 for a benchmark, right? Which is probably about right for a concrete and steel building with, with standard procurement. When you go to the MEP, people and go, well, we've got a target of 600, but we'll say the MEP is 16% of the building. Well, 16% of 900, but 16% of 600 is a lot lower. But your systems are going to be the same. And you don't have many options in an MEP to change what you're doing. It's basically less kit. I think less kit is the future. Try and keep the building simple and it's easier to operate. It's easier said than done there. If you've got an 18 meter floor plate. That's okay, less kit, that's great. Sorry. And Andrew, maybe I can add to this question. How complex and detailed do you expect these optioning studies to be? So I think that's a great question. You can do, if you want to go full on detail and just look at two options in detail and set up two design teams and do that, and you can find a client and do it, great, you're getting paid twice to do the same job. But I think there's, a, there's an element of what we know. I think structurally, that's where the structural engineers come in, because a lot of it is about structural viability. Using tools that are available, iStructure, you have a good tool just for early estimation is a pretty good way of starting. And again, if you're using less material, it's less. The other things are going to be quite equatable. The facade, okay, if you're refacading, obviously it's going to have a bigger impact, but the facade on a new build to the facade on a refab, they're going to be fairly similar. Yeah? There's going to be some complexity in delivering it and constructing it, obviously. But, you know, in terms of an early stage estimation, that's a good assumption just to keep things consistent for the other metrics throughout. And the thing is with the options, if you keep things consistent in those areas, it becomes easier because you're not trying to overthink it. You're just trying to keep things nice and simple, but they're good balanced approaches with, with some data. You can use those GLA benchmarks, but just be careful around how you split up the percentages. And people always go to the lowest point, and we don't do that in any other thing of, of, of stages in a, in a building. We don't optimize the structure necessarily at stage two. We do that in stage three and four, right? And we optimize and we get better. So start from a slightly higher position, and drill down, because then you're going to be more realistic. You don't get a shock at the end of the project. I'm not saying make things worse for the sake of it, but I think there are a few things to think about there. I appreciate there's a lot of detail that could go into it, but I, I think people need to keep it relatively simple. We know quite a lot now about what we're doing. We know a lot, a lot about the different solutions. I feel personally a lot of people look at A1A5 as the panacea, but actually there's a lot going on from that, especially if you look at timber buildings and equatability, and it becomes quite complex. But maybe we overcomplicate it. Yeah. Interestingly, you mentioned about consistency, so I have a question for Rob. Uh, we have seen in recent time that there are lots of assessment being carried out by different teams and consultants, and there is a bit of knowledge gap as well in whole life cycle assessment. Does, does this guidance help you to bring some level of consistency in uh, appraising different schemes and options? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 this is a fundamental part of this guidance. It's about that consistency piece. But I would say it's also really key uh, that it's not just about the guidance, it's also about the process. So um, we've got a team of three people within the, GLA, uh, sorry, within the City of London Corporation 
um, who work on this, who work with developers and with applicants, and they go through the process. And what the guidance does is it allows us the framework to say, right, here's how we're going to scope out the different options. Here's how we're going to uh, progress those. Here's how we're going to compare the different options. Here's how we're going to be consistent. But if it was just a piece of guidance that said, follow this thing, go off and do it, that would have about 10% of the value. The real value comes in sitting down with applicants, with developers, with our, our, our sustainability team members in-house to be able to explore those different options and to really drill down and say, right, what is the best option for each site that we've got coming through the system? Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned your sustainability team at the council. Uh, we've also noticed at times that, uh, if I may say more politely, that council is not very aware of some detailed studies itself. Uh, does, it does this guidance lead you to think of any sort of skill transfer within your team? Yeah, there are certainly some skill shortages right across uh, the sustainability world. We know that from uh, trying to recruit people uh, to the City of London Corporation, but also uh, we know that's a problem more broadly. Um, what I would say is that what we've not done is try to bring in you know, experts who know uh, enormous amounts of detail about every aspect. We want people who can look at schemes more generally. We've got people from a mix of, kind of urban design, architecture backgrounds, um, sustainability policy backgrounds, who've been able to pick this up and apply it holistically. So if you're a local authority out there, don't think you, you need to start employing um, you know, real experts in every aspect of sustainability in order to make this work. That's where the developer and their consultants come in. Mm -hmm. What we're here to do is to use our planning uh, kind of lens to look at these schemes coming through the system. And I guess there's an interesting question, Andrew, for you. As a rough idea, how long does carbon optioning take at early design stages so we can build into design program? Ah, good question. That's a good one, isn't it? I mean, it's going to vary on size, scope, scheme of projects. Bigger buildings, more complicated, going to take a little bit longer. Smaller buildings, maybe a bit quicker. In terms of doing the exercise, it, it, it depends how involved you want to be. If you want to see it, it's planning, obviously. If you want to see it as checkbox, go ahead. But it's not going to add any benefit, but that's your choice. You can do that. I don't think you're going to make a big impact if you do do that. Um, in, in terms of time, it can really vary depending on the scope and project and the scheme. It's important to set that out early with whichever person you're using to have a look at this. Set it out early and plan it in that way because it's, it's just to have a rule for that, it's really difficult because so many schemes are different. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if that answered the question very well, but you know, you're probably looking at three to four weeks' work probably. I, I guess I did. Uh, it brings me to Alex, to you. And talking about the program, uh, one important point is for developers to make early decisions. And uh, that's what Andrew also mentioned. That's not about doing detailed assessment, but making those big moves. Uh, how does your team support this uh, guidance? For example, do you carry out some audits? Or do you do some site appraisals? Are you ready for those things? Yeah, exactly that, to be honest. Um, we've got to look at every option and, as I said, we've got to make sustainable places, places that people actually want to visit and, and, and be in and occupy. And so we've got to weigh everything up. Um, but I think as early as, as, as early as you can do this carbon optioneering, then quite often it can lead to sort of more any 
cost reductions if, like you said, you strip back the building, you think simply, or what's there, what can we reuse, can we reuse the MEP elements in there, that sort of thing. All of that can lead to kind of cost reductions ultimately, but also overall carbon reductions. And um, we're taking that really seriously. Um, and um, yeah, as I said, it's, it's, it's weighing up all those options as early as possible and then tracking it through and, and making sure that anything identified at the start, if it's not identified in the start and it's not in the in the cost plan, it's it's harder to then get in later down the line. So as early as possible, definitely. Okay. I, I think it brings me back both uh, to Andrew and Rob, uh, both of you. And uh, what's the planning process for these guidance? So uh, do, when do we need to submit these studies? Um, what's the process? Well. It really starts from that very early stage, right at the start of the pre-application process, is considering those different options and coming to us and saying, right, how, you know, what's the best route for, for, what are the best ways to scope out how we can design this site? Um, so come to us there. Uh, we then look at that as part of the third party review as well, and we ask for a third party to, to consider that process. Um, and then we'll work with the applicant. It very much isn't a case of right, yes or no, it's a case of us working together to design uh, and to develop those different uh, options that will feed into what comes forward. You know, what comes forward isn't going to be one of those three or four or five options. It will be an amalgam, it will be uh, something that's been optimized, considering all of those wider planning issues, those wider mm -hmm. sustainability issues as part of that process. But it, you know, I mean, planners always say this, but the earlier better and get involved at that pre-application stage uh, with the City of London or with whoever else is doing similar work. I think also it's just worth adding that, that just saying that adding that carbon piece and the kind of environmental impact into viability needs to start happening and if that doesn't happen we're, we're going to make the wrong decisions so I, costing I, it follow the money. Yeah. I guess this is uh, going to be our last question but Andrew a question for you have you been approached by other councils to do something similar? Other countries? Other councils? Other, oh, other, sorry, other boroughs and things. Um, there are some discussions going on with a few people. I like consistency across boroughs, but it's really hard to get that to work um, in reality. The city is quite unique in terms of its building profile. Other buildings become a bit more complicated, but there's, there's something that's workable there. In terms of the market in the UK, I think Manchester are looking at policies Bristol, Bath and Somerset, uh, so there are more areas looking at it, the South Downs sort of national park area are, are looking at this, maybe not in terms of options but they have some sort of carbon thing, so I think it's coming and it's another piece because people are concerned about it and they want to know that we're reacting and, and making things better. There is a counter to that where if there's a scheme someone doesn't want they immediately go carbon and that can also cause another problem, so you have to be quite aware of that. So it's not, it's not easy. But sometimes I think people put their hand up and go, oh, I don't like it, I don't want it, but I'll just throw the carbon. So that's why we have to be prepared and have the answers when those come in to say it has been thought about and a decision's been made on merit. Very good. So thank you all for this wonderful presentation and I hope you all will get to see the guidance and follow it. <laughs>